Well, and I'm back. Uh, yeah, as I uh, threatened, there is a second part, too, with the Beatles, and you are listening to it right now. Uh, yeah, PQ River here again on the Overnightscape Central. Uh, yeah, we're jimboing it up. Uh, it, it, we're leaving it open. If, if you've got Beatles stuff, we're going to take it, and uh, if it if we can and if uh everything's willing we'll do two shows a week i'll do three shows a week um if, if things pick up it, it it could happen um but we're happy that the response has been very nice and uh we have uh, rob from the Paunch stevenson show back again with uh Hopefully another incisive and fascinating look at, uh, hopefully he'll be with us for the duration. And um, if you want to jump in at any point, uh, by all means, and I am still, I am still, I know people are out there who did they hear the Beatles and there might be a song or two, but it does nothing for them. And they are left wondering what was the big deal? And they still, you know, when people like me are doing things like that, they're completely puzzled why anybody this many years later, especially 50 years later, 60 years later now, uh, would be so strident about it's just some crap boy band pop music from 60 years ago. And I haven't had that yet, uh, although this time around, uh, as I have threatened a couple times, I am going to include a Gene Shepard episode from his Saturday night live in front of an audience limelight program where he discusses when he was assigned as a journalist reporter to go on tour with the early Beatles. So, uh, yeah, we've got Beatle fun galore. This is going to be a good one, and I'm glad you're here to lend your ears to the festivities. Without further ado, um, I did, let's hear Rob and what he's got to say on With the Beatles. Hi, everyone. It's Rob. We're talking about the Beatles. The Beatles' second album. Not the Beatles' second album, but the Beatles' second album with the Beatles. Uh, here, in the, here in the United States, we had the Beatles' second album. Called the Beatles' second album. Which was a great album, actually. It was a, that was a really good album. Um, but it's not official canon. So in the UK, the official canon Beatles second album wasn't called the Beatles second album. It was called With the Beatles. So in the US, the reconfigured non-canon capital versions of the albums, the first album was Meet the Beatles. But in the UK, the official canon second album wasn't called the Beatles second album. It was called With the Beatles. Not Meet the Beatles, but With the Beatles. Which uh, always mm, annoyed me grammatically. Like, with, with the Beatles. What is that? With the Beatles. What? what do you mean, With the Beatles? It's, it's such a... An awkward phrase, I 
felt like. But anyway, the first album was Please Please Me. Again, UK official canon. Please Please Me. And then the second album with the Beatles. So let's get into the track. Okay, so so uh, first of all, this album came out in 1963. So Please Please Me was 1962 with the Beatles, 1963. Uh, again, I grew up with the... Like I said in the previous episode, I grew up with the U.S. Uh, capital versions of the albums. I, I live in the United States of America, so I grew up with the U.S. versions. So when the CDs came out in 1987, which is when my family got a CD player, I had to get used to this, what I considered new <laughs> track listing and, and all the new album titles and everything because I was used to Meet the Beatles, the Beatles' second album, the Beatles' 65, the Beatles' six, something new, and, and uh, etc., so I had to get used to the what what was actually the the real Beatles albums. I had to get used to that because I was I grew up being uh, used to the fake Beatles albums. Uh, so anyway, with the Beatles, nineteen sixty three, um, just like the previous album, this was recorded on on two track tape. And uh, there's a mono version, stereo version. I grew up with all the stereo versions. Although when the original CD version of this album came out, it was mono only. Which bothered me. Um, because I, uh, I grew up with the stereo versions. That's what I was used to. So, alright, track listing. It won't be long, very, you know, okay, hold on, hold on, before I get into the track listing. Again, in the previous episode, Please Please Me, I said that album uh, had a very different sound to it, a very different sonic signature to it than any other Beatles album. It had a more live, lively sound and uh, we, we get to the second album now with the Beatles and there's more overdubs. There's more, um, it's, it's just not as, uh, what's the word? It's not as blended. The two channels, right, the, in the stereo version, the, the left and right channels aren't as blended with each other. And there's uh, more separation. It's more dry compared to Please Please Me, and um, I really like the sound of Please Please Me. I think it, I think it sounds better. Sonically, it sounds better. I, again, not stylistically. I mean, just sonically, on a technical level, I think Please Please Me sounds better than with the Beatles. Uh, but with the Beatles, they were getting more ambitious, and, and uh, the writing was getting more ambitious, the tracking... Uh, was getting more ambitious, the reductions and bounce downs and stuff. So it's not, it's not the, with the Beatles isn't the most high fidelity sounding album. Um, and I used to chalk that up to, well, it was 1963, the primitive technology, but no, 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 no. There were recordings back again. There were recordings back then, including Please Please Me, 
uh, that sounded great. That sounded fantastic. It wasn't this limited, ancient, primitive technology. It was just the way they were using the technology for this album with the Beatles. Uh, it just resulted in, in lower fidelity. Uh, but the songs still uh, come through, right? The, the, the good songwriting, the performances, the, um, the strong singing, the strong playing, right? All of that still comes through. You, you don't need uh, audiophile <laughs> level fidelity uh, to capture good recordings if, uh, or, or to capture good material and good performances. If the material is good and the performances are good, good enough fidelity is good enough. But anyway, okay, track one. So it starts off, it won't be long, right? It won't be long, yeah, 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 it won't be long. Uh, great classic, uh, uh, just uh, energetic rock and roll song. I like it. Track two, All I've Got to Do. Uh, it slows it down a little bit, a little, little bit more soulful. Uh, it's another John Lennon vocal. I like it. Number three, All My Loving, Paul McCartney. Of course, a classic hit. He plays it at his concert still. And um, good. It's, uh, it's another upbeat rock and roll song. George Harrison, Don't Bother Me. I feel like this one sounds... 60s. I'll use the word dated or of its time. Whereas a lot of the Beatles songs, even though they're all recorded in the 1960s, right, written and, and performed and recorded in the 1960s, they don't sound out of place even today. Whereas Don't Bother Me has a distinct 60s uh, sound to it. Stylistically. Um, it's okay. It's okay. It's it's not. I don't put it up there with the all time classics. It's not horrible. It's it's in the middle for me. Little child, I don't know. It's kind of annoying to me. First of all, the 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 whole little child thing. It's like, do you want to dance with me, little child? It's like I, I know what they meant, but it just seems weird to me, like little child. And I, I don't know, I just find it annoying. And that harmonica, the, the, a lot of early Beatles, very harmonica heavy. And it's usually fine. It's usually fine, right? But in, f just for some reason in this particular song, I just find it annoying. And they're pronouncing the words in this weird way with like putting like this weird SH sound at the end of a lot of words. <laughs> like they're, And I know they're doing that on purpose. They, they think it's like, they think it's funny or something, but... I don't know. I just I I don't I don't like little child. It's annoying. Till there was you. Uh, it's I like it. I like it. Very nice playing. Uh, it's much. It's it, it's acoustic. It's softer. McCartney singing. George's acoustic guitar playing. This is a very nice song. I like this one. Please, Mister Postman, a cover song. Um, Until there was you. Right. These were cover songs. Um, they took this, uh, this rock and roll cover song and rocked it up even more, which, which I like. I, I like their version of Please Mr. Postman. And John Lennon is belting out, and 
the vocal, and it's it's really I like please uh, please Mr. Postman. Roll over Beethoven cover song George Harrison lead vocal, of course uh, very very classic song and uh, and it's good I like it. They do a good job on this one. Uh, Ringo on the it, it has that that signature early Beatles uh, drum sound with the splashy hi hat and. It's a really good performance. I know that um, through the years, George Harrison got this reputation for being a weak singer. But then I listened to a lot of the really early material, like even going back to the DECA auditions, 1962, Please Please Me, um, he's singing Chains, and Do You Want to Know a Secret? And then on this album, Roll Over Beethoven, and... And I'm like, wait a minute, George George started out being a really strong singer. <laughs> he sounds very confident, he's, very, he's clear, like just a clear, good, strong singer. And then by the end, I don't know, he's like kind of mumbling and struggling and whatever. I'm like, what happened during the 1960s that George went from being this... Kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying he was, you know, some Aretha Franklin levels, but like he was a, 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 a strong rock and roll singer. And then by the end of the 60s was like kind of like mumbling and struggling. I'm like, I, I, that, that's, that's very weird to me. That's very weird to me because in these early songs, George is singing very nicely. These rock and roll songs. I, I thought he was re- a really good singer. Hold Me Tight, uh, some Beatles fans um, think this is more of a throwaway, lightweight, like just little silly throwaway song. I like it. It's catchy. It has different elements throughout the song. There are some people who've pointed out, like, is there even bass guitar on this song? (laughs) And I never noticed that before, but then I listened back to it. I'm like, huh. Especially at this time, Paul liked to play higher up on the neck so maybe this is a song where he's playing really high on the neck with the i don't know i don't know i just thought that was an interesting little tidbit there you really got a hold on me as a cover song um i you know i like it it gets a little sometimes i feel it's a, it's a little plodding from like down 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 it's like uh, sometimes a little boring I Wanna Be Your Man sung by Ringo Starr this was a song I, I know everyone who's <laughs> submitting uh, their their thoughts about this album is probably going to mention this but this was a song that John Lennon and Paul McCartney um, submitted to the Rolling Stones the Rolling Stones um, recorded a version of this which I don't like. And then the Beatles recorded their version of it, uh, which I also don't like. It's just, it's just a horrible song. It's so repetitive. Tell me I'm your lover, baby. I want to be your man. I want to be your lover, baby. I want to be your man. 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 I, it's like, wait, you wrote one sentence? And that's an entire song. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, Devil in Her Heart cover song. Uh, I like this one. Again, George Harrison on the vocal doing a great job. 
early Harrison vocal. Uh, I, I like this one. I like Devil in Her Heart. It has a cool sound to it. The chords and the dry. I don't know. It just has a cool sound to it. Not a second time. John Lennon. I like it. It's, it's, it's a little different. I don't know. It just has a, it gives me a different feeling than the other Beatles songs. It's just for some reason. It's, I don't know. The piano. I don't know what it is about it. But I, I like Not a Second Time. Um, and then continuing in the very short-lived tradition of closing out the album with a belting Lennon rock and roll vocal right on Please Please Me, you had Twist and Shout. Here on With the Beatles, you have Money, That's What I Want. Uh, just like Twist and Shout, it's a cover song. And Lennon, you know, the vocal... Ringo on the drums, and uh, it's just uh, a, a very uh, classic, legendary performance and, and recording, too. It's interesting, on the Decca uh, audition recordings with Pete Best on the drums, it's a different take on the song. It's a little different arrangement, a little bit different tempo. But I like I, I like that Decca audition. I, I know a lot of Beatles fans... Um, it's it's become the narrative, it's become the mythology, it's become the lore to just automatically accept as fact that the the Beatles 1962 DECA audition recordings are horrible. The Beatles sound sloppy, the Beatles sound amateur, the Beatles sound nervous. I was I don't know. I use my own ears. I don't just blindly accept what has become the automatic narrative or the automatic mythology. And when I, when I ignore that and listen with my own ears, I'm like, these Deco audition tapes are actually really good. They don't sound nervous. The Beatles don't sound nervous at all. Pete Best drumming is perfectly fine. Their playing is fine. Uh, George Harrison's vocals, you know, John, Paul, like all their vocals are really good. They're playing really well. It was 1962. It wasn't, I mean, if, if you're comparing stylistically um, what a rock and roll band sounded like in early 1962 versus um, 66, 67, 68, you know, so much changed in the 1960s so frequently and so rapidly. I have to listen to the Decca audition for what it was at the time that it was. And to me, the Beatles sounded good. I like those recordings. I like those songs. I like those performances. That, you know, it, it took me a few times to listen to it because I was so used to this version. It took me a few times to get used to the earlier version. Uh, so anyway, I, uh, this is a stronger album material-wise than Please Please Me, but, but uh, I, I do like the sonic sound of Please Please Me better. But uh, yeah, overall, very good album. I'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Ah, nicely put. And, and, and I love the analysis. Um, I don't know about George. It, it, in my opinion, George Harris, I'm going to have to go back. But yeah, he did have 
Maybe it was the uh, prevalence of drug use at the time. I'm not sure, but yeah, he, he did, or a change in style, being more laid back because of his Maharishi guru experiences. It's, it's hard to say because, yep, this is what, 1963, and his 68, 69 is when he became a gentler vocalist so to speak but it's an itch and the deco editions have always fascinated me i was a collector of beatles way back before anthologies or even things like beetle rarities albums were out there i I'd make trips into New York City and go to these like murky record stores. Uh, there was one on Sullivan Street in the village that was my favorite for bootlegs, although Bleaker Bobs, uh, which would move around the general village area, uh, also was a great place to pick up Beetle bootlegs in the day, if I recall. And with the BBC sessions, all these things that are much more out there. I mean, they were the unknowns. There wasn't the internet. There weren't books with their complete sessions like there are now. And finding these things, and of course the um, recording quality of some of these. But I had the LP of the Beatles Deco editions, and that was one of my prized possessions for years and years because it was just this. And some of this, uh, we're, we're going to have to do uh, maybe even a mini show somewhere sooner than later, or if we go back and look at rarities. But that is a collection that uh, now that Peter brings it up, it is worth going back, maybe even uh, sliding it in if you're listening and you care to, if you're participating in the project. Uh, the Deco Editions album, uh, which it is about an album's worth of material, there is a lot that could be spoken about. And yeah, Pete Best is not an awful drummer, but uh he's not Ringo and his defenders I mean yeah that poor guy had he just I don't know had things gone a little different his life would have been very different but you know you can't uh, Monday morning quarterback the drummer of one of the biggest bands in the history of music especially this far out uh and luckily, I mean, I remember Pete Best uh, appearing on the Howard Stern show way back in like around when those CDs came out, 87. And he was this miserable SOB. And yeah, once he got that anthology money, he, he felt better, I'm sure, as far as that. Um, and uh, what right now we are going to, as I said, I've got this Gene Shepard that uh, certainly fits and is illustrative of a different look, the perhaps establishment look as this was going on. But uh, let's listen together uh, to a limelight show from 1964. Ted Malley is still giving his weather. So just be calm out there. You know, 
since we since we are here now at the limelight, are we all at the limelight, gang? Let's hear it. Yeah. What a hole! Yeah. <laughs> and it's in the heart of sizzling, live, dynamic, honest, clear, clean-cut Greenwich Village, where the search for truth goes on endlessly. Right, gang? Yeah. We're searching for the truth tonight, eh? Yeah, yeah, I can hear that. You notice how they chickened out when you said the truth? There's a little fear. <laughs> you know, have you ever had the feeling that, that, that you take the average person, especially men, I don't know about women, but I can tell you, the average man, he's walking down Fifth Avenue or he's walking down the main street in Trenton, just walking along, you know. You put your hand on his shoulder and say, okay, buddy, it's all over. He'd say, all right, all right. <laughs> I'm serious. I, I, I'm sure that the average guy <laughs> always waits for the heavy hand on his shoulder. <laughs> and, and when you use the word truth, he always thinks it's, a, it's, in, it's in connection with somebody else's rottenness. But you look a guy right in the eye and say, the truth is going to come out one day. And then what? <laughs> well, I want to tell you what. For the past two weeks, I have been living with the Beatles, or as they would call it, the Beatles. And I've, I've been in uh, Dundee, Scotland. I've been in Edinburgh. I've been in London where they work, Leeds, Liverpool. I've been in all these various cities on a, on a, whole, on a whole series of one-night stands with the Beatles, living with them, stay, living in their room with them in their dressing room, riding through the dark countryside, trying to escape the fanatics, and observing England from the other side of the glass. Now, we're all Americans here, and the one thing that Americans are used to, they're used to constantly being under the scrutiny of other people. For example, beyond the fringe comes to New York, and it's a satire by Britishers, mostly about America. We sit out there and applaud, you know, and somehow it seems right that Peter Cook should tell us what's wrong with Congress, you know? <laughs> somehow Peter Cook knows all of the, the, the things that are happening in the American presidential election and so on, but it never works the other way. I, I suppose you're aware that if I were to appear in Britain, uh, they would not immediately nominate me to play Richard the Lionhearted. And yet, are you aware that they're casting a movie here in America and they're, they've just recently cast a man to play Abraham Lincoln? Guess what nationality he is. <laughs> We're going to have a British Abraham Lincoln. And somehow, you know, that makes him more official, you know? <laughs> I mean, the, the idea that Lawrence Olivier or somebody like that is playing Lincoln seems a lot more real than if, say, an American were to play Lincoln. Because, uh, you know, there's a, there's a little thing there. Well, I, being a good American, of course, I have been completely awash in Britain ever since I was a kid. We take English literature in school. We go to drama. We study English poets, English history. In fact, most of us know more about English history than we do American history. And so now I find myself in England in the real thing, 
sitting in a little tiny, superheated, stinking, smelling dressing room, knee-deep in fish and chips and beer with the Beatles. England's final answer to Richard the Lionheart. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing. And out in the darkness, I can hear the sound of millions of girls screaming. It's a, it's a, it's a children-girl thing, you know, in England. And you hear, it sounds like a thousand sirens going off in the distance. It's just a high-pitched wail. It goes, wee! Goes in waves, wee! And then one of the Beatles says to another Beatle, I think it was George said to Paul, he said, Paul, you're a Beatle. And Paul says, aye. And George says, Paul, you're a Beatle. Pass a miracle. Work on, walk on water. Walk on water. And Paul says, okay. And he goes to the window, <laughs> sticks his head out with the hair, you know, wow, the whole world explodes. He he throws it back again, and he turns back to me, and he says, are you Beatle people? I said, no. He said, well, then sit down and have a beer. <laughs> well, I'll tell you that, that, that the sense of unreality, I think, that, that these people feel, None, nothing is real out there anymore. And they have to drive at night at 3 o'clock in the morning through secret roads that are guarded by police so that people will not attack out of the bushes. And at night, when you're sitting in the back seat of the car and the Beatles are hiding down on the floor at 3 o'clock in the morning, going God knows where, being protected from God knows what, you begin to have a slight realization of what mankind is about. And you don't really quite like it. And at the same time, you can't help it because you're part of it. It's like being in the army. Any of you in the army in this crowd? Well, you know, you know the sense of being in the army and you've got a uniform on. You're walking around like other people. And yet you're not part of it. I wonder whether or not anyone has ever recorded that one facet of army life. That when you're in the army, the other people are totally unreal. The civilians, they seem to be another race. And that's the way it is with the Beatles. Today, the world is like Mars to the Beatles. They're the only real thing, just four of them sitting there, eating a steak, drinking a beer, and it's all brought to them. You know, they're never allowed to walk on the street like normal people. They're never allowed to even look out of the window because riots, how would you like that fantastic sense of power that if all you, all you had to do was go to the window and say, kill each other, boom, boom, the knives would come out. That's exactly what they do, and, and, and they do it often, you know. <laughs> once, in a while, once in a while, Paul will sit there, you know, and they get a little bored, and they're all sitting around in their T-shirts. And outside, you can hear the rest of the acts going, you know, you can hear the rock and roll roaring around. And suddenly, Lennon, or maybe Paul, will get up. Yeah. You like a little excitement? And Ringo says, uh. <laughs> That's Ringo's total vocabulary, incidentally. He's <laughs> not one of the brighter people. <laughs> but he's sweet, girls, all right. 
<laughs> I wish I could tell you the real stories of the Beatles. <laughs> Ringo goes, <laughs> Ringo goes, uh. And then Paul goes up, usually he, he, he goes up to the window, he says, watch this. I'll try to do the Liverpudlian accent. He says, oh, watch this. He walks to the window and he has maybe a potato chip. Anything that's just an ordinary little piece of nothing, a cigar butt, you know. He's got a paper cup. He said, watch this. He looks out the window and he just peeks out a little bit. You know, they have drawn shades and everybody is out there. The whole city of Glasgow is out there. Millions of them. And just five minutes before, you know, you, you have an idea of the kind of madness this thing is. Because we're sitting in this tiny little dressing room. Sweaty, hot, showbiz. These are rock and roll performers, you know, and they're, they're, they're very simple, very earthy, basic people. They're just like showbiz people everywhere. They don't read. <laughs> you know, they, they just sit there, see? And there's, there's a little knock on the door, just like this. Now, I want to I show you a scene. Little knock on the door, and one of them looks up and says, Who's there? And the door opens just a crack, and it's one of their managers. And he says, excuse me, Paul, the Lord Mayor of Glasgow is here. The Lord Mayor. Ringo turns to Paul, pops his ear. John goes, spits. And then somebody says, let him in. <laughs> and the little Lord Mayor comes in. Remember, this is the Lord Mayor of the Glasgow. He comes in with his hat in his hand. Are you the Beatles? And they say, I, we're the Beatles. Who are you? He says, I'm the Lord Mayor of Glasgow. Ah, politician, eh? Says, yes, yes. We've got to get back to work. He says, thank you for letting me in. And the door closes. Now, what kind of madness is this? I observed this. And then we are in Dundee. Now, Dundee is a Scottish town on the coast of Scotland, and it's hard and rough. It's a fisherman's town. And in fact, I'm not in town five minutes, and I'm walking past this little tiny store, and the window is filled with knives, millions of tough, rough-looking knives. And I'm curious, you know, it, it doesn't impress me as the J.D. sort of town, you know. It, it looked like 42nd Street. But these are real big bone-handled knives, you know, the real stickers, real toad stickers, you know. And so I go into this place, I figure I'm going to get myself a real souvenir this time, you know, something that I can use back home. <laughs> See, I'm in radio, friends, you know. And so, so I go into this joint, and here's this little lady standing back, a little Scottish lady, and I go into the, into the, into the store, and her little daughter or something is with her. And they are totally unused to seeing Americans. Americans do not come to Dundee, especially in the off-season. And especially they don't come to a little second-rate, what appears to be an Army-Navy store, where they had a collection of old maces from old crusades, you know, left over. That's the way with the British Isles, you know, you can buy some great surplus there. So I walk in, and I'm standing there, and... and their, their, their Scottish dialect is so almost totally unintelligible. And I said to her, what are the knives out in the window? Uh, I'd like to look at some knives. And she says, sure, those, are, those knives are for killing sharks. 
I said, for what? They're killing, for killing sharks. The fishermen here use them for sharks. I said, the fishermen use them for sharks. I mean, this is not like Jones Beach, you know. <laughs> and so I bought myself a knife, and I walked out with this fantastic knife, great big toad sticker. And it came with a leather sheath. So I, I you know, I, I'm very little embarrassed by this thing. What do you do with it? You know, walk down the street, and they didn't wrap it, you know. They don't hardly wrap anything in England. I've got a big knife. And walking down the street, and I didn't go 20 feet, and a man came right at me wearing high rubber boots, and he had a toad sticker that went down to his kneecap. Just walk, clunk, clunk, clunk. He walks past me. Great big Scottish shark fisherman. They fish for shark livers there. And you could smell him a mile. He walks past, you know, my eyes clouded up. And he... By the way, I'd love to show you how, I, I just wish we weren't on the air. I could, I could, I could, I, I've been working on it. I, I, I will entertain my friends with this, but you ought to hear a Scottish, a Scotsman swearing. It is honest to God, it sounds like a fantastic symphony. I have never seen creative swearing like you hear a Scotsman. And I sat in the back of a Scottish taxi cab in Glasgow, which is one of the toughest cities in the Western world. And we were going through the side streets of Glasgow, and this guy kept up a steady stream of stuff. At first, I thought he had bad tappets. I thought his bell springs were bad. He just swore steadily. And it's all in Scottish. And somehow, when it comes out with those rolling R's and that, it sounds cute. You know, we, we go right down the mainstream, right, right down the mainstream of traffic, and I become aware of a, of a sullen undertone of the same thing going on. And that's the way you drive a cab in that town. I don't think they use gas. They just <laughs> what a tough city. So, so now you've got an idea of, of, what, of what Dundee is like. It's rough, tough, you see. And I am there with the Beatles. The Beatles are playing this little theater. There's about 3,000 seats in it, and it's bigger than the town, you know. And the Beatles have arrived, and the fishermen are coming in. Big guys with boots and funny hats on with the knives and stuff. They're clomping in. And now we're in the dressing room in Dundee, Scotland. It's a very strange thing for an American to get inside of life. Most of us Americans are rarely admitted to this kind of a world. And the Beatles were sitting in their dressing room, waiting for their dinner. And out just where the sea began, you could hear millions of Scottish kids screaming. Just a steady beat. You could just hear it coming in, and the rain was coming down, and you could hear the toad stickers clanking out there. Oh, it was a strange, surrealistic world. And I, I just wondered what it was all about. You know, the, for, for, have you ever had these moments when everything seems so unreal that if you were to walk across the room and to float six inches right off over the carpet, it wouldn't surprise you, you know? I couldn't put anything together. I had only been out of America about three days, and now I'm in the back room of a ramshackle old theater in Dundee, Scotland. And you could smell oatmeal. You know, the Scots live on oatmeal. You could smell oatmeal and they, and they drink scotch whiskey. They really do drink it. And when you walk through the streets, you can smell it everywhere. <laughs> You're stepping over, you know, all the time. Well, they, they really put it away. 
And, and the Beatles are sitting there, and they're passing it around in paper cups. We're in Scotland. I'm trying to get my bearings, and there's a knock at the door. Now get this scene. This is the Beatles in Dundee, Scotland. This is an ancient part of the British Empire. There's a knock at the door, and one of the Beatles says, Who is there? And I hear another little knock, and it's their secret knock which says, It's okay, open up. And so Lennon goes over, and he takes the door, and he just sort of peeks out, and there is one of their managers. And he says, he says, a countess is here. And Lennon turns to the other Beatles, and he says, a countess. And Ringo says, let her in. Let's take a look at her. <laughs> I says, a countess coming to see this, you know? And sure enough, the door opens, and in came this magnificent. She really looked exactly the way you think a regal countess should look. She's dressed in furs. She's tall, thin. She has a peculiar kind of ring she wore. She just sort of held her hand this way. And she walked in, and behind her were two ladies-in-waiting and a tiny little chauffeur wearing little black hats and black puttees, you know, like those in the, you know. And, and I'm standing there, you know, watching this. My God, I, I, just, I had the terrible feeling of being an, an eavesdropper on something I shouldn't have seen, you know. And the countess comes in, and here are the Beatles, all with their shirts off. One is sitting there picking his toes, his shoes off. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not inventing it. They're all sitting, and not one of them gets up. You know, they're all sitting like this. And the, and the countess comes in, her fur is trailing behind her, and you could just hear the sound of these medieval trumpets rising, you know. It was the British Empire. She walks in and stands in the middle of the room. Nobody said a word until finally Paul said, I hear you're a countess. She says, yes, I am a countess. Yes, yes. Are you the Beatles? And Ringo belts John in the short ribs and says, get this, are we the Beatles? Is she putting you on? You know, their hair all hanging there. Are you the Beatles? It's like asking, are you Santa Claus? You know, the big beard. And, and so, so one of them finally, you know, I said, well, when are they going to ask her to sit down or something, you know? And here they are, they're, they're, they're shoving potato chips in their mouth, you know, one. One's eating the potato. One guy's got a piece of fish hanging out. Like the scotch, they're belting out. And, and she finally says, she says, we have driven all the way over from the castle to see you. And I'm so delighted that you've allowed us to come backstage. I love your work. Ringo says, huh? <laughs> And she says, yes, we play your records at the castle all the time. And somehow I had that, suddenly I could hear it. Rock and roll, booming out through the castle. You know? You just don't want to think of England, do you? You, know? you don't want to see C. Aubrey Smith and Lawrence Olivier digging Presley, you know, walking around spitting and yelling. Well, finally... There was, a, there was a long, pregnant pause, and Lennon, who is, is, is the most civilized of the Beatles, 
Suddenly he comes to her and he says, he says, sit, sit down, sit down, countess, sit down. And she sits down. Have you ever seen a countess sit? She really did, you know, and all the beetles are loud looking at her. So she sits down and her furs go down like this and she's got a ring. She sits and looks and she says, which beetle are you? And the beetle in question says, George, like in King. <laughs> so help me, I heard it. <laughs> and she goes, <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> how funny. And then, then Lennon says to her, he says, are you a real countess? She says, yes, I am. And then Paul says, where's the count? She says, well, he didn't come tonight. And we waited for a moment. It was one of those great moments of classical human behavior. It sort of hung there for a second. And then Lennon said to her, he says, what kind of castle do you live in? She says, well, it's a very big one. It's called Glamis Castle. Yes. <laughs> Glamis Castle, in case you don't know, is the oldest of all the great castles in England. And she's talking to four Englishmen. Remember that. And one of them says, Glamis, where is that? Even I knew, you know. And she says, well, it's, it's, you turn left at the road down at the end and you... You turn at Route 7 and you just continue it. You can't miss it, you know. It's a big castle. And McCartney says, how many rooms does it have? And so help me, she turns to her lady-in-waiting and says, oh, uh, Lady Barbara, that would be in your department. How many do we have? And Lady Barbara sat for a second. She says, I believe 238. And Paul says, you've got plenty of room for your relatives, haven't you? <laughs> and, and she says, yes, we have a lot of room. And Lennon then comes back with a question, by the way, that is a pure American question. When was it built? Only Americans ask this. And Lennon said, how old is it? She says, I believe... I believe it was started in 1067. 1067, and I'm listening to this fantastic story of the British Empire unfolding right out there before me. And the countess finally said, you could see she was the master of all difficult situations. This is the thing that sets the aristocracy apart and above us. And she didn't know how to end the conversation. And she finally said, she says, you'll have to come and visit me. Why don't all of you come to the castle? And Paul said, hey, that ain't a bad idea. We're staying in a damn motel tonight. <laughs> and you can see automatically, you know, the, the, poor, the poor countess can see four drunken beetles arriving at four in the morning yelling with eight million fans in Glamour's castle. <laughs> and she says, she says, that would be lovely. Now, may I have your autographs? And one after the other, 
Paul. George. George. Ringo. And that's the end of it. And she walks to the door, and the Beatles, not once getting up, fish and chips, their gin going, slugging away their scotch. She gets to the door, and one of them says, Oh, Countess, have you eaten? Would you like something to eat? She says, It looks very good. <laughs> and out she went to the sound of more trumpets. Is this not? An incredible relic of so many things. Are you? I hope you're enjoying this. I mean, I remember listening to this some years back, maybe, but this is just so rich and so pertinent, I guess. But it's like cultures meeting and seeing it from this point of view is for me a totally delicious and i'm going to leave you with this just at the end it's just going to end like it did uh i'm going to take this opportunity to do a soft promo next week right here on the overnight scape central the deadline being this coming what wednesday uh the uh, what a february here 8th of February 2023 to be on the original uh, Hard Day's Night is the next uh, album that we're going to look at here in our Beatles series. The email address for comments and uh, your sending in an audio contribution or any other such is kpqr dot t-o-r-c at gmail dot com and uh, i will repeat uh, get something you can write it down with go ahead it's k-p-q-r dot t-o-r-c at gmail dot com and uh, let's listen to the rest of this together into the night and uh, we'll catch you the next time and as always uh, i implore you to set the controls for the heart of the fun. Well, I sat there, you know, and I thought, for crying out loud, you know, I'm an American, you know, this, I shouldn't have seen this. Somehow it didn't seem right that I should see a thing like this. That, was she slumming or were the Beatles slumming? It was very hard to tell. She went out, walked down the hallway, and Paul said to John, he said, you know, you guys, that's a real countess. John says, yes, I've seen countesses before. They always wear coats like that. And Ringo goes, uh. And that was the total discussion of the countess and her life. Now, the next night, I thought, you know, this is a fluke. And so the, 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 the big concert went on, and the people screamed and yelled. And I, it, was, it was almost like a kind of fever in the air. It was like... The bubonic plague it was very hard to tell. It's hard to describe it to you. It's as if the entire country has decided it's going out of its skull. And they have appointed the Beatles to be the reason. And the Beatles recognize now they don't even sing anymore. You know, they just go out on the stage. And woo! It starts, and they wave a little bit, and then they go off. And the roaring continues for hours. So about two hours later, I'm in the back seat of the Beatles' car and we're heading for the Scottish Highlands. Have you ever been in the Highlands? 
It's a very interesting experience. These hills climb all the way to the sky. And it, the, 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 the country is the, probably the most beautiful in the world, next to Switzerland, and possibly even Switzerland included. You can't believe it. And it's at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and we are screaming down a highway at 95 miles an hour in a gigantic Austin Princess, which is about the size of a super, really, let's say, a super deluxe Rolls. They've got it floored, and we're screaming through this little country road, taking corners on one wheel, just woo, and I'm sitting in the back with the Beatles, you know. I said, what's the matter? What are you doing here, Shepard? What is this? And they're all sitting back, they're changing clothes. Do you know that their clothes zip on? Are you aware that those, that those little skinny suits they wear, they, you can't put them on? And that their pants zip all the way up the back. They have a guy that zips them all up, zips them, and they walk out. You know, they stand like this. That's why, have you noticed the Beatles don't move much when they're on stage? They don't make any Elvis movements or anything. They just sort of stand there, you know, like little dolls they wave. They got springs and everything. They're all zipped up, and the curtain goes down. It's wild. The curtain goes down. They all turn to the right, and a guy rushes out, and he goes, ooh, 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 ooh. Then they walk. The Beatles. <laughs> oh, what an insane time. So I'm, 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 riding through, I'm riding through this countryside with them. I can't believe it, you know. I says, this, this is England. This is, this is what we in America all have a vague sense of inferiority about. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, the road was lined with, with doer-looking people just looking out from behind haystacks, waiting for the Beatles to go by. 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and you could see them holding lanterns up, and we're sailing through the countryside, and every car that they saw, they would throw rocks at. This is a form of love in Scotland, by the way. And you'd see the rocks bouncing across the street, and the Beatles said, get down there. Here we come. Watch the one by the haystack. Watch that nut. And you boop, boing, you hear the rocks. And I'm sitting there and says, oh, what would King Arthur have thought, you know? How would he have handled it? Well, we went, we went deeper and deeper into the countryside until we finally arrived at the lock where we were staying. You know, the Beatles, in case you're interested... There are more security regulations governing the places where the Beatles stay than that which governs the president. Seriously. That people are sworn to secrecy all over the countryside, and wherever they stay, they always stay outside of town in the most likely place. The most likely place for anything but Beatles. Like they'll stay in a little place that's marked Diner. They just stay there overnight. Or they'll be in a little place marked Motel, and they'll stay there. Well, we were staying in a tiny inn next to an ancient Scottish lock, Lochern, which is one of the most ancient and most revered. And, and in fact, Bonnie Prince Charlie had fought a battle 20 feet away from where I was staying. That little plaque out there. Rob Roy had robbed somebody 20 feet outside the other way. Yes, I'm serious. And, and everywhere you saw this strange tartan quality of the world, because this is really Scotland. We arrived about 3 o'clock in the morning, and the innkeeper is there. You can see that this is the greatest moment of his entire life. He had been knighted. 
He had been designated. It was like a visitation. It was like a second coming or something happening there. And he stood by the door, sort of bent over, tugging at his forehead. Are the Beatles there? And I said, yes, they're coming. They're, they're going to be. He said, are you with them? And I says, yes, I'm one of the party. He says, may I shake your hand? Put her there. <laughs> I'm one of the Beatle party, you know. Somehow that made me a real, made me, it made me part of this whole scene. And the Beatles slowly straggled up the hill in darkness. And one after the other, they came in through the door. And a couple of managers are all, arrived out and back in their little cars. And we went into the bar. I want to give you a, a typical vignette in, Beatle, in the Beatle world that you never hear about. The strange world of the... I can only say that this is the world of... I guess the word would be almost delirium. It's like the world has become delirious. It's surrealistic. Remember, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. We're next to a Scottish lock. An old, old lock with hills surrounding it. There's not a sound for miles. It's a sullen, quiet, angry countryside. And all of us go up to the bar. Little tiny bar in the inn. Paul, John Lennon, George, Ringo, the manager. And he brings out a bottle of sherry. This apparently was a bottle of sherry he'd saved since the last coronation. And he was saving it for the next one. He brings out the sherry, and he says, Would you like a glass of sherry? Uh. John says, Sherry? What is sherry? Who drinks sherry, man? He says, What will you have? I have anything you want. He's got scotch. He's got all the fine stuff there. One of us was poured a little drink. We started to sip the drink, when without warning, there was a sound outside in the darkness, a hum, like the hum of angry bees at three o'clock in the morning. And it was getting closer and closer. You could just hear it. It was coming like a big storm. And the Beatles are doing nothing. They're just sort of standing. And I said to the man behind the desk, I said, what is this, a storm? He said, I don't know what that sound is. It must be something on the road. And just when he got this out of his mouth, the door slams open, and there stands a Scottish constable. And he says, Are the Beatles staying here? And the man behind the bar says, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He says, I have just called out all available men. There are 20,000 people coming this way. What are you going to do about it? What have you done to us? And the Beatles come, just drinking their scotch, and that night, we spent in total darkness with a ring of policemen in the hills. 500 policemen keeping the entire British Isles away. <laughs> and you could hear the hum of them out there. You could hear them in the trees. You could hear them in the hills. And once in a while, you'd hear a little wave of, ah! <laughs> Just, ah! And it would trail off. And it's now 3.30, quarter to four, and a couple of the very famous local gentry had been allowed to come and see the Beatles at first hand. One of these strange little vignettes, a tall, thin girl 
obviously the, the sweet beetle fan type, you know. She comes over and she stands behind one of the beetles. She's just been admitted to see them. She can't believe it, you know, because they don't look, they're not real to people anymore. They're kind of like dolls or strange little automatons. And here they are, they're sporting there. And she walks over behind and she just sort of looks down. And by mistake, she brushed one of the beetles' coat. And he whirled on her and he says, Get your filthy hands off me! <laughs> well, he wasn't being funny. And she sort of ducked back. He says, Nobody touches me after midnight! Yes, yes. And then there was a kind of an embarrassed pause, and the beetles kept eating. And finally she said, May I have your autographs? And one of the other beetles looked up at her and says, Will you clear out? And she says, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And out the door she went. And the Beatles sat in total control of their world. They would either admit people or they would deny them. They would either give them an audience or they would turn them down. And believe it or not, it got to the point with me, you know. I'll tell you, there's a funny thing in human beings where I began to feel special myself because they talked to me. Yes, this is the kind of nuttiness that must have created a Hitler. Must have felt good to a guy, you know, to walk in and have Mr. Hitler say, Oh, hello, hey, there goes Hans. Hi, Hans. <laughs> How many of you would like to be greeted by first name by, say, Lucky Luciano? <laughs> no, it's a secret thing. We all have a secret desire to somehow be greeted on a first name basis by somebody who is a real myth and a legend. And up to this point, you know, I had been a non-believer. And I saw this happening. Nobody got angry at the Beatles. Oh, no. When the Beatles would throw somebody out like the Countess, just hurl her out in the street, it was all hurt. And she felt pleased to have spoken with them for a moment. And so it got to the point where I would come in, and John would look up and say, How are you doing, Gene? I would glow. <laughs> the Beatles recognized me, you know? And when one of them would say to me, how would you like a drink, huh? Here, have a butt drink. And he'd hand me the drink. The great warmth would come out again. And I realized that I had been admitted to Olympus. I was allowed to be on the same plane with a world phenomenon. Fascinating. And, I, and you know, I kept trying to say, don't worry. I kept trying to say to myself later, I'd get out of the room. You know, I was over there on a special assignment to do a piece for a major magazine on the Beatles. And I would get out of the, of the room, you know, and they've talked to me. We've sat and had drinks and stuff. And I would get out into the, into the, into, into the privacy of, the, of a hotel aisle or a hotel hallway. And I'm walking along and all of a sudden I says, what are you doing? This is a rock and roll group. These are the Beatles. For God's sake, Shepard, get a grip on yourself. <laughs> and then the door would open down there and McCartney would stick his head out and he'd say, Hey, Gene, when you come back, knock twice. We'll let you in. We don't want to let anybody else. Just let knock twice. And he'd slam the door and then I'd say, I know what I'm doing. God recognizes me. Well, you know, 
I learned something then. I learned how possible it must be for a reporter to remain objective in the presence of the very great. Now, notoriety can be greatness, you know. I remember one day down in the Yankee bullpen before a ball game, one of the hard-hitting, angry writers from the Post, you know, the Post works in anger, you know, like other people work in clay and marble, you know, really bug. They look at the Yankees as a plot against the Mets, you know. And, and, and one of these, these hard-hitting, angry reporters, you know, almost all, of the, the, almost all of the really angry writers are very undersized little guys with thick glasses. It's just what, it's what makes it come out, you know. And I'm standing back down there, way out by the bullpen, you know, where the Yankees have the bullpen, way out in the corner there. You expect to see nobody out there. Well, standing right next to the bullpen wire fence is Roger Maris. He's just standing there. He's been chasing fly balls. And you know how, how Maris stands anyway. He's got that snotty way of standing, you know, just that real loose way. You know, one hip is flung out, you know, he's got his hat, that straight-on hat. He's got the mitt there. And, and Maris is just surveying his entire kingdom. You know, from out around that, that bullpen, you can see all of Yankee Stadium. You can see the press box. You can see 80,000 people. You can see those three tombstones over here. And Roger is in his, he's in his, his milieu. And he really is the king of it. So I, I am standing out there. I, I, you know, I, I don't say anything. I'm an observer. I, I just, I make it my, my a, a rule of thumb is to keep your mouth shut unless spoken to. I found this works very well. So I'm out there sort of walking past. I'm seeing Raj. Raj is standing there with that big number nine on his back. He's wearing the, the home uniform. He spits. And I see this little New York Post writer come scurrying around the edge of the path. Little man, you know, he comes up, you know. Hi, Raj. Raj looks down. Hi, Ray. I've invented a name. He just says, hi, Ray. That little guy straightened up. You could see his gut pull in. Raj is doing nothing. He's watching the flags, you know. He doesn't even know. He's just waiting for this time at bat, you know, in, this, in, the, in the cage. And the little man says to him, how does it look today, Raj? Do you think we'll do it today? Do you think we'll do it today? Do you think we'll do it? And Raj just simply says, I don't know, Whitey's going. It's pretty good. The little guy says, that's what I thought. Looks good. He scurries away. And the next day, I read this piece in the Post. And it's a hard-hitting expose of why they should trade Roger Maris. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, you know, I thought, gee, you know, so much of this so much of this is, is, the, is that problem of objectivity. Have you ever thought how it must be to travel around the country in a presidential train where you're really with the president? And the president comes in every five minutes after giving one of these whistle-stop speeches and sits down next to you, eats a sandwich, drinks a beer maybe, or has a glass of milk, begins to know you, 
begins to know that your name is Myrtle. This is old Ray here, and there's Fred. How can you possibly keep your objectivity? I, I know many uh, a good drama critic who is totally ruined that day that Olivier begins to call him Bert. Forget it. It's never going to happen again. Never be able to observe the scene with that old cold light of objectivity. And as I rode throughout that countryside, I found myself slowly becoming not only a Beatle fan, but a Beatle. Yes, I began to, you know, when the screams were out there, they were screaming for me. You know, I was sitting in the crowd with them. I was part of it, you know, they were me. And I'd walk to the window. You know, one thing about Beatle fans, they scream at anything that moves. <laughs> You've you got to understand that anything that moves, they scream at. And, and even if it doesn't move, if they think it's moving, they scream. And so one of the band boys, one of the kids who worked in, in the Edinburgh Theater, all he did was set up the drums, you know, that kind of jazz. He came backstage, and there's this little window looking out over the alley where there are 18 million kids screaming for the Beatles. And he was talking to one of the Beatles about setting up the equipment. You know, just a straight conversation. Like, what do you want it? Do you want it back over there or here, over here? And one of the Beatles says, ah, don't worry about it, mine. I'll adjust it myself. He said, okay, okay. And then he turned and walked to the window. Just stood there for a minute. And then pulled the curtain back and looked out. And there's a fantastic, Wah! He pulls it back. He turns back to the crowd and he says, just once I want him to scream for me. <laughs> just once. Now that sounds like I invented it, but so help me, that's exactly what happened. He says, just once I want him to scream for me. Which brings up a point. How many of you secretly scream for whatever it is you scream for, whether it's a presidential candidate, whether it's a philosophy, whether it's a beetle, how many of you scream? How many of us scream just out of the sheer exuberance of screaming for something? Just screaming for anything. Anything that, that, that somehow will respond to our screams, like bow a little bit. Yeah. I, I have a feeling that, that one day, in some of our major countries, there will be mechanical devices which will be set up to receive and record the quality and the quantity of screams that we can hurl at. And that we will have favorite machines. Somebody will like the green one. Somebody will like the red one. Somebody will like the blue one. And every night, they will put another one of these on stage for us to go scream at. Now, what, hear that? Whose watch? <laughs> Strange. But it's, it's a curious thing to sit backstage in, in, in with the Beatles and, and see the kind of madness they engender. Do you know that when the Beatles are on stage, not one person listens? Are you aware of that? And, and a good 25 to 30 minutes before the Beatles come out, the thing starts. Their screaming starts. And they, they don't sit, of course. They all stand. and. and and have you ever seen paintings by Hieronymus Bosch? Well, I stood on the stage. Let me tell you, the, the wildest scene of all is not to watch the Beatles. But I stood on the stage, apron, back, just back of the curtain where you could see out and they couldn't see you. 
and I watched the audience. And whoever was staging this, I'm telling you, it was a fantastic job of staging. They had red lights playing over the audience, just back and forth, red and green spotlights, up into the, uh, up into the balcony and over here into the loges and the bottom here into the theater pit. And this entire mass of screaming, waving, insane, wild human beings, you couldn't, you couldn't even re relate to it as human beings. It was like you were looking at some kind of swarm of beetles or gnats or some kind of an insane wasp nest that's been stirred up. And then the final night happened. It had to happen. Even the beetles themselves had never seen anything like this. We were playing a town called Leeds. Now, Leeds is, a, is an industrial city, just an ordinary kind of place. It's like Gary, Indiana, as a matter of fact, or like, uh, like Union City, you know. There's a lot of factories and refineries, sort of a tough, nothing city in England, an ancient one, but very nothing. And nobody was expecting what happened. It just came out of the, out of the, out of the combustion. The Beatles were on stage, and the waves were coming up screaming, screaming, just roaring up, one after the other, and it was getting higher and higher. And the man standing next to me was their road manager. He'd heard thousands of these. And he said to me, he says, this, this doesn't sound right. He says, this doesn't sound right. And he called two of the stagehands. He says, get over back here. Something's going to happen. He said, it sounds funny. And sure enough, it did. It was getting more and more. It was coming in wave after wave and quicker and quicker. And suddenly, without any warning, it was like a big wave coming right out of the ocean. It broke right over the parapet, and there were about 50 girls on stage. Just went bloom! And the Beatles, oh, you know, they staggered back, their little zippers popping, you know. And the Beatles, by the way, are all about four feet three, you know. And these, these, this great wave of girls all poured up on the stage, and it was a fantastic melee, and the, the stagehands, constables, and me, by the way, we all rushed out, and big scream for us, you know, part of the show. And what do you think the girls were doing? It was unbelievable. The girls were tearing off their clothes, not the Beatles, but theirs. Literally tearing their clothes off on the stage. There must have been 50 of them. Well, here they are, throwing these chicks back like footballs into the crowd, you know. You'd, and they were all about eight years old, you know, nine years old. You grab one, and whoop, her bloomers are flying, you know. And the rest of the crowd goes, Wah! And we're throwing them back. One of them had crawled under the stage. How she got under, nobody knows. Under the stage, and she came out of the wings like a shotgun shot. Just boom, she hit out of there like a little bowling ball. She rolled three times and knocked Ringo's drums over. And as she rolled, you could see her peeling, you know, just wildly peeling. Ringo grabbed her by the neck and pushed her down. Get away from me! <laughs> and she let go a fantastic... Aah! And Ringo says, pull the curtain down, man! And boom, down it came. And the Beatles were trapped with seven naked five-year-olds. <laughs> What a moment, I'll tell you. A great moment in the English theater. 
Well, well, I, I, I'll tell you, I, I, they're throwing the kids off the bop. And, of course, that ended the show for that night. And the next day, the press blamed the Beatles. The press said the Beatles, once again, have, have caused violence to strike our small city here. And I'm thinking of all those parents at home with little girls named Agatha. You know, little skinny girls eating oatmeal. And the mother says, did you enjoy the Beatles last night? Says, yes, Mommy. And I can only see a picture of little Agatha flying through the air, trailing her pants behind <laughs> No, I, I suspect, you know, I, and I began to have a real understanding of what this is all about. It has nothing to do with rock and roll. And I'm curious, and, and you know, the Beatles often talk about this. Uh, in fact, the Beatle manager, a couple of them, uh, this is a subject that always comes up is, I wonder what the next act is going to be like. <laughs> well, already they're beginning to pop out. There's one, <laughs> there's one in England that, that comes out on the stage, and there are four guys, and they wear their hair down to their waist. And it's all in a bouffant hairdo that goes trailing on down. Have you ever heard of that group? They wear pink sweaters. And they wear these tight stretch pants that girl wears. You know, these little things that girls wear, and they come out with high heels. Oh, yeah, I'm serious. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. They're the biggest new thing in England. Now, I can't tell you what the audience does with that crew, because we have women and children listening to us. But I saw them work in London, and you cannot believe it. First of all, their audience isn't really little girls, it's something else. <laughs> well, in a manner of speaking, they're not little girls. It's, a... <laughs> it's a very difficult thing, this culture business, you know. <laughs> and when you when you when you get over and you get close to get close to the underbelly of all this that's going on, you wonder just really in what direction. The third day I was there, Pravda came out with an editorial, and they had a picture of a riot that had occurred in one of the English cities over the Beatles, and it translated said, another example of Western decadence. <laughs> and everybody says, oh, what is this stuff? You know, what? And I thought, well, is it or isn't it? Are they telling the truth or are they not? Let me tell you of the night. Do you want to hear about the nightclub that I went into? It's the innest, hippest English nightclub and the, the, the number one guest that night was Mandy Rice Davies. Oh, yeah, she was, she was the number one exhibit that night, and I sat down next to this girl. It was a dark place, and the rock and roll is coming out. And it's, it's wild. It's just a scene like twisting, writhing bodies, and the music is just booming out. And I'm an American, you know. We're used to, you know, the, the limelight, how innocent, you know. I come in there, and I sit down, look around, and the guy next to me says, would you like to meet Christine Keeler? I says, the Christine? Crepes on a toga and you're in business. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, you know, decadence. I, I think that, that one of, oh, hey, we're on the air again. Come on, let's give, let's give Ohio a big hand, crowd. Hey, listen, you, you just don't know how it feels to have to live in Circleville. 
You people just go through. I mean, you know, some guys never leave Canton, Ohio. No wonder they think New York is a plot against them, which it really is in a way, you know. But uh, speaking of plots, we're back here at the at the limelight in the hearty, reliable Greenwich Village, a Fleischmann's yeast cake of passion here. And uh, yes, it's fermenting. I can feel it. We'll be here. We'll be here until about uh, midnight or so. And if you're casting around for a cheapy place, we're here. You know, speaking of cheapy places, one of the great things about about traveling. I mean, really traveling. By traveling, I mean getting getting out of the tourist rut, really traveling, is it does the same thing to the traveler that being in the army does to the soldier. It gives you a sense of anonymity and a sense of irresponsibility. I'm curious how many people who are very hip back here in the States who would never think of taking a picture of a statue in Central Park. All of a sudden, their basic slobism comes out in London. They just walk around, you know. You, know, you can be a slob, nobody can see, you know. You, even if you're a village voice writer, you can be a real slob in Greece, you know. Nobody's gonna see you there, you know. And, and, and of course, the, it, it holds in all kinds of areas. Now, back home, I don't go to nightclubs. It just doesn't interest me much. Well, I'm in London. I'm there about the second or third day. And one of the Beatles says to me, he says, say, he says, have you ever been to the Whoopi Club? <laughs> well, I'm giving it a, a, a name. It's, it's a different name, by the way, than this. So this is an artificial name I've given it. So I says, no. He says, well, man, if you want to go, if you want to really see something, go to the Whoopi Club with me. I said, fine, all right. And so that night, long after everything had been put away, are you aware that in, in New York City, now wait, I'll just, I'm going to let you in on something, people, that right here in New York City, there are little cells of inness, little places where the really in people, and they're, they're allowed in because they are in, you know? I don't know how to express it. It's just, they're in, you know? These are the people who go through life and never pay for anything. The whole world is on an expense account as far as they're concerned. They even charge dying to the diner's club when they die. They deduct it. These are people who never pay for a, for a blessed thing in their lives, and they're the true ins. You might call them the borderline celebrities. In fact, they're even more celebrities than celebrities because, you know, a real celebrity has to do something. Uh, you know, uh, an actor has to work and be an actor to become a celebrity. He's a working man, in short. A painter has to paint to be in. But there is a special kind of celebrity who is above all of that sort of thing. And they're truly in. And all over the city of New York, there are these little rooms, little dark rooms. They're called this club and they're called that club. They're never mentioned in columns, by the way. They're that in. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, you have these little gatherings. You know, all those people that appear on the Johnny Carson show. And you sit in there, yeah, all the official people, you know. Oh, yeah, it's great. You, know, you, get a, you, get, you can't believe it. Jaja Gabor, they're all there, you know. And so when you get into one of these places, you're actually admitted. 
you feel like somehow that there is something in this business of heaven that some people are admitted to some things and others aren't and that we're all always before the great bar of justice now the beautiful thing about most people is that they don't they're not even aware that there is an in these are the true out you know they're just they're all looking at me dumbly like I'm inventing this you see this is the great lumpen proletariat and the guys that are in have the most fantastic disdain for that lumpen proletariat out there, that great population made of cream of wheat. You know, the people that they run over with their Alfa Romeos, you know, that kind of thing. You know. Oh yeah, I'm serious, there is, a, there is a real aristocracy in this world and they have the complete disdain for those out there. And that includes everything morally, you see. That the morality that the lumpen proletariat abides and lives by, that is a sign of outness, literally. And that the more you, you behave in the accepted pattern of behavior, the less likely you are to ever be admitted in. Now, I suspect that if Nero was around, Nero would have five of these little establishments going. They, as a matter of fact, have existed all through history. All through history. And usually, most of the people in a civilization are totally unaware of this. It's just they don't even know that it's there. And yet, these people are a kind of leader because after you've been to a few of them, you recognize that what is going on in here is what will be going on out there five years from now. But what will be going on in here then is unimaginable. <laughs> totally unimaginable. And so one of the Beatles says, why don't you come to the Whoopi Club? <laughs> I says the Whoopi Club, and he says the Whoopi Club, and I, you know, immediately I think of something like with girls dancing, you know, and cigarettes and all that stuff, you know, the hat check girl, and you know the whole bit. See, I'm really a lumpen proletariat. I wouldn't be here if I wasn't, you know, on the radio yet on the John Gambling Station. So, so I, I, I said, yeah, you know, I'm sure, you know, I'll go there. And he says, well, this is quite a, quite a thing, you know. So that night, the show is over. We finish our work. The Beatles have finished making $8 million. I have finished observing them. Everything is settling back now to a normal thing. And, of course, in a city like London, a beetle can get around with comparative ease because, you know, it's a fantastically big city and all the men have got their hair like this. So, you know, it's just another one of the goops, that's all. And so we are sitting in the back seat of a cab, me and this beetle. We're going, going, we go up and down little side streets, and I figure, where are we going? You know, what is this? Because I keep thinking in terms of, you know, uh, the Great White Way, Broadway, the Copa, and all, the Latin Quarter. And he says, the Whoopi Club. And when he said, the Whoopi Club, to the guy who was driving the cab, I noticed a very peculiar thing. The cab driver gave a sudden quick look back. He says, I, and he sort of scrunched down. <laughs> he didn't know who he was with, and he wasn't taking any chances. <laughs> he just knew about the Whoopi Club, that's all, you know. It was, it's legendary, so... 
I didn't know until, you know, years after a week, but I saw immediately. So up and down the side streets we go. You know, London streets at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning have a certain mausoleum quality about it. It's a very spooky city. To me, London is the most foreign of all cities. I say this to you as an American, because you're constantly under the impression you can talk their language. You really, you're always under the illusion of contact, and it never quite works, and you wonder why. You keep feeling that everything is a little out of focus, and you're always on the verge of a fist fight. And either they're going to hit you, you sense there's a certain stretching of the muscles there, or else you feel like, well, what do you mean? You know, you want to go down and grab him. You don't get that feeling in Holland, because in Holland they just go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You go, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you pay, you know? Everything's fine, no problem. This works out great, you know, and wherever you go like that. But in England, you keep, you know what I'm doing to this day now? It's funny, when you walk around England, and everything in the windows, you know, there's prices on it. It always says 3106D or some little th funny thing like that. <laughs> you automatically divide everything you see or multiply it by three or divide by three or something. And you look there and you say, oh, that's $7. That's not bad. $7 for a Rolls Royce. <laughs> and, and, you, you know... And you walk in there, and it turns, you know, you can't quite figure out. Now today, now I'll walk around, and I'm looking in the Bond clothing store, and I'm translating it into pounds to figure out whether I'm getting taken or not. So you get this funny sense of, of, of the enigmatic in England. It's a very enigmatic country. You, you have the feeling that they're sweeping an awful lot of stuff under the carpets, but you can't find the carpet. You know, you just have this sense, like you'll meet some very important man, like he's the head of uh, the God Department. You know, you meet him, see, and he's, he's Sir Malcolm something, and you sit down with him, and you note that his collar is dirty. You know, this is a little, and not only dirty, it's very worn around the back. And you don't know what to say, you know, and, 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 and whether he's a slot. And he speaks in this beautiful Oxonian, fantastic language, and all the while he keeps spilling soup on his pants. <laughs> Very peculiar, you know, you're always trying to put it in focus. And, 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 and all the while he is saying, of course, you know, this is the, the one thing about the Americans, they're certainly such boors. <laughs> you don't quite know what to say, you know. Where does boorishness stop and a bad set of false teeth begin? Well, we're, we're you know, I'm walking through the streets, and finally we get to this corner, and he stops the car. And it looks like a closed block of office buildings. You know, it's like if somebody at 3 in the morning took you down to Wall Street. Everything's closed. There's nothing on the streets at all. Darkness. Boy, when those, when those London streets go, when they turn them off, man, it's like somebody has turned off a switch somewhere and everything is off. The sound is off. They've turned the sky off. The, the clouds have been turned off and everything. There's a kind of a fog settling in, see. And you can hear things echoing. And my little beetle friend, you know, his turtleneck all pulled up. He's walking ahead of me like this. You know, I'm sort of running behind him. See, this is a, I figure as long as I'm sticking with the beetle, it's all right. You know, at least we can hear, oh, I'm a beetle and the town will turn on, you know. So, 
So I'm running behind this guy, and we, we get to a, a, a doorway in the side of a building. He opens it up, and there's a light in there. I go in with him. And at the other end of the corridor is one of these automatic elevators going up into what appears to be BBDNO. <laughs> I mean, serious, it looks exactly like an office building. You know, the kind up here in Manhattan, you know, with all about 25 stainless steel elevators that says sign in and all that stuff. And here's an old man sitting there, and I walk in and say, what, what is the scene? He says, you follow me. And the little man says, all right, will you please sign in? So the beetle writes down, beetle. <laughs> and so... I don't know whether to write down my real name or my or the name I always use when I'm traveling, Charles Follinsby Apperson. <laughs> Never know, you know. So I write C. L. Apperson, and he says, "All right." We stand there, presses the button, you know, the one that says "up." He presses, wait. Little red light goes on, the doors, and I am standing in a stainless steel elevator with a beat. Doors closed, we stand. This is the damnedest night out I've ever had. <laughs> you know, I'm waiting for the whoopee sounds. I'm waiting for I'm waiting for the sounds of a cigarette girl or somebody grabbing my coat and wanting a buck or something, you know. We get up to the top of this building, we go about maybe five or six stories, just goes and it goes unk. Opens like that, we step out into total, absolute stygian darkness. Complete. I mean, it's like there isn't a light in a thousand miles. And there's a man just sitting there on a three-legged stool watching. <laughs> just looks at us. He is there, you see, to keep the outs out. Once in a while, one arrives, you know, with a bucket and wants to sweep up or something, you know, and they just throw him out. So he just looks at it, and he immediately sees it's a beetle. And he goes, hey. And he says, beetle. And he says, Okay. So we go in through another doorway, and we're now in. Well, how can I describe it to you? Is there any Dante fan house here? <laughs> I am serious. I am in a scene of unmitigated profligacy. It is, it is passion unbridled in the darkness. And from loudspeakers all the way around the walls, you hear this just deafening sound of rock and roll. It's just going dunga 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 dunga, and I'm jumping, you know, like this. And this beetle just walks ahead like that. He's, and you hear in the crowd, I beetle, I beetle. He says, I, 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 I. Back we go all the way through this room, and the writhing bodies twisting and screaming, the hoopla and the uproar, and one after the other. You could see people peeling off. And finally, the Beatles says, sit down here. And I sit. Well, I immediately recognized that this was not a meeting of Little Orphan Annie's secret <laughs> circle. That my magic decoder pin was not going to decode this. There were a lot of messages that didn't have anything to do with me going on. And sitting directly in front of me is a chick. See? Well, you know, I'm Charlie Apperson. See, I figure I can make the scene pretty good here now. You know how Americans are. We're all in this, so I'm going to be part of it. And there's a chick sitting in front of me there. And the darkness is getting darker. 
and they bring me a drink of some strange elixir. You know that the inn people don't drink stuff like you're drinking. I don't know what they made it out of, but I had three eyes instantly. They used some strange Mexican root, which is so esoteric and so evil that they haven't even yet made laws to keep it out. They don't want to... They don't even want the father is such a thing. And they mix it with Coke. So they shove one of these in my hands and my eyes are immediately adjusting. I got three eyes moving around like this, you know, searchlights, my ears are singing. And I see this chick ahead of me and I belt her between the shoulder blades. I say, hi, baby. Well, the chick turns around and gives me a look of sheer solid hatred and turns back to the crowd. I said, well, take another slug of this strange drink. Passion is flowing through my veins like a deep, rich river now. This compost heap of, of live emotions, me, is beginning to pulsate. I said, hey, baby. And she turns to me and says, excuse me, my name is Chuck. Well, now, wait a minute, are you applauding Chuck? <laughs> or the fantastic boo-boo I made? So I said, oh, hi, Chuck. You know, I reckon, and here, here, here is Chuck sitting ahead of me there, and he's talking to a real chick. And they're discussing their hairdresser. Well, I, I sat there for about three minutes trying to get my bearings. You know, have you ever had this feeling of, of being suddenly thrown into a dark swimming pool and you don't know which way you're going? It's like waking up at three in the morning. You don't know. Which, you know that feeling of, of waking up at three in the morning in bed and you don't know which way you're turned? You can't figure out which way is the bathroom, you know, or anything. <laughs> so you're laying there, you're lying down. You say, what am I doing this way? You know, you're looking around. You know, you're lying. And here you're actually lying right. You know, you wake up, you, you turn out like, what, what happened? Well, this is the sense I was having in the whoopee club. I didn't know what to say to anybody because I didn't know what the language was. But all I knew was that I was definitely a spy. I was from the outside world, and they didn't quite know it yet because I had come in with a beetle. Well, I sat for about 20 minutes trying to get my bearings and all the seats were low you know these seats that you see in in roman orgies they're just low long flat things around the wall not real seats so if you want to sit on somebody or put your feet on somebody's ears or anything and it's just everybody's all lying around like this you know on each other and all tangled a twisted mass and somebody kept pulling my leg trying to get me into it you know it's just all out there in front of me, just twisting and turning like so. And I, I, I stayed there for about 10 minutes on the edge of this thing, and they're tugging at my feet and hitting at me. And finally, the beetle comes up for air. He surfaces briefly. And he says, hi, Gene, why don't you get in and join the fun? Says, what do you do? He says, just come in. It's all right. The water's warm. Well, I plunged in. Now, I want to tell you what happened. I literally did. I plunged right into the darkness. I stepped 
out of the little circle. They had little tiny lights where you could see the seats. And I stepped into the arena. And from ceiling, they had ceiling speakers. Oh, fantastic. About the size of those great big squares up there. Over the entire assemblage, it was a pit. Sort of hung down inside. And over the assemblage were these loudspeakers, not more than a foot and a half over your head, turned up a thousand dBs above S9, rock and roll. Physically, you want to you know, just pounding you, boom, boom, boom. It's going, you hear the sound of beetles screaming. And I get down in the middle of this mess, and they're twisting in the darkness. I can just see this wild thing. So I go off into it, you know, I start twisting. <laughs> I, I move it back. You know, it's not, they're not dancing, remember that. They're not. I shouldn't use the term twist because you think in terms of dancing. It was just a strange gyration that everybody was doing in the darkness. And they'd bump into each other and they'd move off. Once in a while you'd step on somebody and they'd squish and they'd move off. <laughs> you could hear you could hear squeals of laughter, you know, out of the dark. Whee! You know, whoopee! And I had a figure, I had a feeling this was only the prelude. I had a sense that this was the opening movement of this party, whatever it is. And we, we went round and round, and then suddenly they turned off the PA. Just boom, like that. This is a signal for everybody to go back and have more gentian root. <laughs> or sassafras tea, or whatever that stuff was, which they sold for five pounds a clip. And so... I go staggering back, and I sit down there, and immediately out of the darkness, they're handing these things out again. I've got another one, you see, and the, and the first one is now turning my feet to stone. You know that funny feeling of, of you're, you're beginning to fall asleep from the foot up, and it's working its way up to my knees now, you see? And the top of my head, I can hear little things going ding, 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 little bells ringing. Well, I take one sip of this, and I know Man, I know I had better get out there on that dark street quick. Because one more sip and Shepard ain't coming home. <laughs> I knew that I would not be on the air anymore and pulled into that maw of human debauchery. Never to return. In fact, they tell me that there are many American celebrities. That you, you know people, you, have you often said to yourself, I wonder what happened to uh, Charlie Brown? <laughs> He's out there in the darkness somewhere. It's insane, you know, and you, you, you come away. Speaking of insanity and passion pits, what station is this, friends? Come on, let's hear it. Yes, the John what station? Hey, let's give the Westport School announcements a big hand. Right, George. Well... I, 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 was, I, was, I was kind of stunned for a minute, and I sipped a little bit of my drink, and sitting next to me was Mandy Rice Davies. I'm telling you, so help me, I'm raising my hand, it was Mandy Rice Davies. Now what do you say to Mandy Rice Davies? <laughs> do you say, I've uh, admired your work? <laughs> yeah. You know, like I've been a fan for years. I, you know, she's sitting right there, you know, she has this, this beautiful, strange kind of Cockney accent. And I said, uh, I said, I'm an American. She says, yes, I know. 
Apparently, Americans are no fun in that department. That's <laughs> all. So, so, you know, there was a kind of a cool moment there, and I just said, nice club. <laughs> you know, what do you say? You know, and she just turned to me, stone cold look, and it swept through the crowd. An outsider was in. I knew it. The Beatle came back and sat next to me, and he said, how you enjoying the club? Just as he said that, the music started again, and they melted into the darkness, and I was alone. I watched for about two minutes this moiling mass in the darkness, the screams and the yelling, the great roar of a rock and roll, and the, the giggles. And you could hear the sound of grapes being stepped on. Somewhere a violin was being played. Nero was on the scene. You know, you expected to see any minute guys with, with cloven hoofs running through. <laughs> Little horns, you know, with fur pants on. Well, this, this went on for about five minutes, and I knew I had to go because it was going to be a stain on my soul I could never erase. And I walked to the door, and standing in the doorway was the guy. You know, you don't pay when you go in. You pay when you go out. Apparently, there's a lot of people who are holdovers in there. This is... If you want to come, you can stay two weeks, you know, if you want to. And, and, and I, 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 I walk up to him, and he says, he says, uh, he says uh, are you a member? And I said, uh, I'm with the Beatle. I says, I, 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 you're coming back tomorrow, huh, are you? I said, yes. <laughs> and I go into that little stainless steel elevator all by myself, the doors close. Silence. You know that hermetically sealed feeling you get in these automatic elevators? And as I went down, every foot I went down, it became less real. It stopped. It went... And there I am in the lobby. There's a little old man sitting there with the... He says, sign out, please. So I go over and I write the... 416. My shaky hand and it's all swirling around me. My eyes are still bulging and my feet are still that numb feeling. They're asleep. I get back out on the street and there's a single girl. I'm going to tell you a, a wild scene. This, this is exactly what happened. There's a tall, thin, beautiful girl standing under the streetlight. Now, you, you, you really see people in England at four in the morning. They really stand out, and she's standing under the streetlight. I came back out. Boy, the air. It's silent. Back of me is an office building that looks as innocent as Young and Rubicam does tonight. It does, you know. It's just a solid office building with the stainless steel front. And the girl comes, and I thought, uh-oh, uh-oh. Don't tell me this now on top of everything else, you know. She comes up, and she says, Excuse me, please. Were you in the whoopee club? I thought, uh-oh, am I going to get busted? <laughs> I mean, is this fuzz or what? You know, that instant feeling, fuzz. And I said, yes. She said, would you please take me in? I said, take you into the whoopee club? She says, yes, I've heard about it. I've heard that it's so much fun. And I said, well... I'm not a member. I was just taken in as a guest. 
She says, oh, you're so lucky. You're so lucky. I said, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> George, you know, I begin to feel like a real debauched, rotten person. I, I've been to hell and back, you know. I walk out, I hail a cab, and I get in the back of the cab, and we went about five blocks, and the guy turns to me, and he says, he says, were you at the Whoopi Club? I says, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are you going to make of it? He says, I had Mandy Rice Davies in my cab. I said, oh, you're a lucky man. He says, yeah. And we'd rode through the quiet, still darkness of London, past Buckingham Palace, past those great ancient eating clubs, and finally back to my little pad. And I wondered about what side of England this is. What part of it is? Who is in the darkness out there? You know, right now, at this very moment, right here in America, right here, I'd say within about three miles of where we are, I would say that there are maybe anywhere from two to five cells just like that going on. Would you like to go, gang? Crazy. Would you like an invitation? No. Well, you know, they don't... You Uh-oh. You notice her husband doesn't say anything. <laughs> you know, they don't honor diner club cards there. And, and carte blanche, they don't honor. But you know, the funny feeling of, of being out and suddenly being in is both a good feeling and a very scary feeling. And I had a sensation like that once in the Army. In case you're interested, somebody wanted to hear an army story. Well, I'll tell you a funny one. Uh, this is part of the army life that's never recorded. It's the sense of being out when you're in the army. And all the other guys in the army seem to be in. And you're just there. You got a funny suit on when you're first in. You're, you know, you're walking around. And I am a ping pong player. I love to play ping pong. Are there any ping pong players in this crowd? Well, I happen to be a left-handed ping-pong player. And in the Army, particularly in the Army Signal Corps, ping-pong is a way of life. And you can hear the sound at 2 o'clock in the morning, guys whiling away their lives in the day room. You just hear ding tong ding 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 tong ding tong ding 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 tong tong Then there's a pause. ding tong ding ding tong tong that's the army, you see. <laughs> Do you know that some guys, some staff sergeants I knew got three consecutive raises in ranks without ever giving up their paddle? They just played all day long. They'd come in, they'd say, you're a staff now, and they'd put another badge, ding dong, ding. That's cadre, you see. And cadre gets very good at playing all the games that the, that the guys who aren't cadre never get a chance to get near. Well, I had one brief moment when I was cadre. Now, how many of you guys know, all, all you guys have been in the Army, you know what cadre means. That's permanent party. For those of you who are not in the Army, have you ever had the feeling in your life that there are people who are there permanently? <laughs> in the office where you work? The real people, you know. You're just there until they catch up with you. <laughs> well, that's, that's cadre. They're there, you see. 
And, and I'm assigned to this army camp, and they make me cavalry. I've got a patch, and that means now I'm issued my ping pong paddle. I can play ping pong. So I'm a left-handed ping pong player. And so I'm working, you know, by the way, this gives you a fantastic advantage over ordinary ping pong players. And, and it gives you the illusion that you're a good ping pong player. And so I'm playing, and I began to develop into the best ping pong player. I'm, you're looking right now, seriously, you're looking at the best ping pong player that Company K of the 803rd ever turned out. Absolutely fantastic. Backhand, forehand, I had it down pat. And the one guy I played with, you see, all ping pong players have a favorite adversary. Well, Gasser was my adversary. Gasser was six feet nine. He was from California, and he was a right-handed ping pong player. Well, you see, it's like, it's like a giraffe fighting a mouse. And I could beat Gasser. It was nip and tuck, but it was always 21-18. Gasser, ooh, you know, walk around. I, that snotty little thing, you know, the little tip over the net. I'd, I'd hang him in the corners all over. That, that, you know that, that great sense of power you get when it's going away? You go, thing, and it goes, shoo, boing. And then there's, oh, all right, let's go. Who's serve? And you stand back there moving. See, I'm getting better and better and better as I played. One solid year in the day room. I went from T5 to staff in the day room playing ping pong, and I got better and better and better until finally there was no competition, just me and Gasser. And we put on these, these, we put on these demonstrations, you know, how long can we volley? And so we would volley through an entire basic training cycle, you know, like this, you know, this kind of thing. Watch this, Gasser, you know, zing, ding, ding, Gasser, ding. We're playing, and the people would come and watch us. You know, we're fantastic. Well, finally the day came when Gasser and I were shipped. And we've got our bags packed. I've got my paddle stuck down there with my mess kit. Got a set of extra balls, you know, I'm a real... You never know where you're going to get shipped. There might be real hell there, you never know, you know. So I've got my equipment and we get shipped up to Fort Monmouth. Well, now we didn't realize that we were in the world of the real city slicker. And by now, you know, Gasser and I figure we've got the whole scene pegged. We've been in the Army a couple of years, you know. We're real solid types, real GIs. And the third week we're here, we get our first weekend pass. Well, I had never seen New York. Gasser had never seen anything bigger than Whittier, California. Do you know any of you, because you're all Easterners, do any of you know, I'll bet you never will know the thrill that is only a thrill that will be felt by somebody who comes from way out there in the darkness on the other side of the Hackensack River, out there past the last Howard Johnson on the turnpike, to whom New York has only been a myth. It's like Oz or the Emerald City. Well, here I am for the first time in my life in New York, and I'll never forget the sight. I could not believe a city could look like this. Incredible. It's intoxicating. Very. It's unbelievably beautiful. And Gasser and I are walking along 23rd Street marveling. <laughs> we haven't even seen the city yet. It's 23rd Street that's knocking us out, you know? And, and we finally get uptown and we go through Times Square and my 
General, there it is. You can't believe it. The buildings, everything stretching. The Empire State Building all the way to the sky. And we're drifting around. We've got about, oh, you know, we had, we had at least two months' pay in our pockets. Big, fat wallets. That's a, that's a great thing about being in the Army, too, you know. There's, money is for one thing, to squirt. You don't think of tomorrow. Let me tell you, you know, you got this big fat wallet. You know, you got it. You got, you got a pass, a three-day pass. You're absolutely anonymous. You feel like you're a, you're a thousand feet tall. Well, Gasser and I are walking up and down Times Square. We stop at the stage door canteen. Do you remember that one? Well, we go down to the stage door canteen. They give us a sandwich. You know, we'd seen the movie about this, and, and we felt like we were intruders. You know, we went down there, and they give us a little sandwich and a hot dog. And even to this day, when I walk past that street, do you know that in the 40s, right off of Broadway, there's a plaque on the side of a building, and it says, in this building was historic stage door canteen during World War II. Well, one of the very few times I ever felt like I was really in the army. You know, the kind of army you see in the movies with Van Johnson and all that? Was the night that I sat down in the stage door canteen. And this little guy is serving. You know, they had civilian volunteers from the theater would serve. And that night, this guy comes up to me and he sits down. You know, he's going to be good to the GI. And I said, hi. Uh, he says, uh, do you like the Army? I said, eh, you know. What do you say to a 4F, you know? He says, uh, do you like the Army? I says, eh, you, know. I, you know. I've been in the Army long enough now, you don't even say you don't like it or you like it. It's just your life, you know. Do you like your life, friends? You know, so I'm sitting there, and I said, well, what do you do? And he says, oh, I'm an actor. I says, an actor? You know, in Hammond, Indiana, they don't see actors, you know. I thought, oh, here's a phonus balonus. He says, I'm an actor. He's about this high. So he says, I'm an actor. I says, what, what, do, you, what do you do? Where, where do you act? He says, well, I make movies. I says, you make movies? Well, you know, immediately, this means real acting to Hammond, you know. I says, movies? What? I, immediately, I'm thinking of Johnny Weissmuller pictures and Priscilla Lane. And he says, well, I just finished a movie called Laura. I never heard of it. It was a new movie. I never heard of it. It's a movie called Laura. I never heard of it. I think I'm putting him down, see. He says, well, I don't know whether it's going to do anything. It's just a pot boiler. It's kind of a mystery. I said, Laura, what's your name? He says, Dana Andrews. I said, oh, come on. I never heard of you. And we're, we're sitting there, and that was the kind of evening it was. Back and forth, a kind of strange unreality, and gassers sitting across the room talking to the singing lady. Believe it or not, he got hooked with the singing lady who was entertaining him. And so, five minutes later, we're back out on the street. Here it is now. It's one o'clock in the morning. Two GIs in town, the first time in New York. And we are up on Broadway in the early 50s. But can you imagine that area there now? There's a lot of car dealers there in that area there. And above those car dealers, they had bowling alleys. One after the other were bowling alleys. And Gasser looks up and he says, you want to bowl? I said, ah, you know, I want to bowl. All night long they bowled in those days, you know, as a swing shift and stuff. And one of the windows had a sign that said, 
table tennis. Little did we realize we were about to meet our fate. We were about to be shocked. Gasser says, let's go up and give him a lesson. So I says, okay, Gasser. And so up those long, winding, dark stairways we go, and you know there's pool, millions of pool tables. And there's about 25 bowling alleys, and over in the corner there are three ping pong tables. And they were beautiful tables. Magnificent tables, not like the day room, you know, with the lumps all over it. And so Gasser and I walk over, and so a couple of kids are just sort of playing casually, you know, just pinging back and forth. There are two empty tables. And Gasser calls the pin boy or whatever he was over and says, how about a couple of paddles here? The guy says, well, it's 25 cents a game. Gasser says, that's nothing. He takes out his wallet, puts a $5 bill. He says, let's go. All right, chap. He says, what do, you, what do you want? Do you want the light side of the table or the dark side? We flip. You know, a couple of old ace ping pong players. So we get in a position. I get the ball. It's a real New York City ball. You know, the real big time. So I, bing. I start to serve. Bing. And immediately, you know, we're hitting him with authority. That solid authority of feeling free, no scare, no worry. You're on top of your game. Bing! Like the beautiful lights. Boom! Bing! And immediately, these two kids look over, you know. One of them says, wow, you guys sure can play. Gas says, oh, it's nothing. Watch this. Gas with the right hand something. You know. Shepard goes, ding, you know, <laughs> boing. We're banging you know, like back and forth, and we play a game. Shepard wins 21-18. Gaster says, okay, I serve, let's go. By this time, there's about 10 guys standing around watching. Gasser and Shepard are playing a, a Minnesota Fats-type game. <laughs> you know, we're really playing it big, and, and out, outside you can hear the traffic of Broadway. It's the big town. It's everything. We're all, you know, you, there's a kind of delirium that enters into it. And one of the kids keeps watching. And finally, after about five brilliantly fought games, the kid says, can I play one of you guys? Gasser, six feet nine, says, all right. All right, which one do you want to play? He says, all right, I'll take that one, me. Shepard says, so Shepard says, all right, okay, kid. He says, of course, by this time, you know, I'm, I'm, remember, I'm a GI. I'm bronzed. I got a flat gut. I got stripes all over, you know, my sleeves are rolled up and I'm sweating. I'm really full of it all, you know. So I says, okay, you go ahead and serve, kid. So he goes, bing, flying, bing. She's the worst player I've played since the guy in the day room who was OD, you know, bing. So Shepard's flying like this. All right, go ahead. I'll tell you what, I'll give you a five handicap. Okay, kid? He says, thanks. So we play. Shepard murders him. And so then we play another game. Shepard murders him even worse. And then he says, can I play the tall guy? And Gasser says, all right, sure. I'll give you a five handicap. So Gasser beats him twice. And then the other kid says, can I play? He is even skinnier and littler. Gasser says, all right, I'll take you on, kid. And Gasser beats him. By this time, I could see guys drifting away from the bowling alley. They're getting closer, closer, closer. And then that little, that little snot says, 
How about putting the buck on the game? Oh, this is silly, you know. All right, so we put the buck out there. Gasser wins the kid's buck. So then he says, let me play the other guy. So I win a buck from him. I win three bucks from him. Gasser wins six bucks from him. And finally the kid says, gee, you guys sure can play. We had him pegged for a, for a rotten rich kid. You know what a rotten rich kid is? The Princeton type? So the kid says, listen. He's gasping. He says, listen. I'm a good ping pong player. I don't know what you guys are doing to the ball, but I can beat you. And Gasser says, oh, yeah? The kid says, yeah. You want to bet everything in your pocket against everything in my pocket? Gasser says, yeah. And the other kid says, oh, yeah. Wise guys, you're doing something to the ball. I'll bet everything in my pocket that he can beat you. So I says, oh, yeah. Gasser and I got it all out there. You know, we're laying it out. Everything, my pass, the whole bit, you know. I said, all right, wise guy, which one do you want to take? The kid says, you. All right. Okay, Gasser. Gasser steps off. Shepard goes, ding, my best serve. My, my back forehand slice. Ding, dong, boing. And the kid goes, Gah. Let me tell you, there was a silence in that bowling alley. You could have cut with a knife. Jaime's got another one on the hook. <laughs> well, let me tell you, I figured, you know, it's one of them flukes. I got another serve, so Shepard goes, boing, boing, and I get it in the mouth. <laughs> that came back, boom, in the face like that. I says, Gasser, give me your paddle. He gives me his paddle. Well, it was a nightmare. That guy took me apart and put me together again with ribbons. He took me apart again and then put me together again with airplane glue. Then he shredded me sideways. Then he put mayonnaise on top of me, salt and pepper. And I'm laying there, you know, every time I could, I couldn't even touch it. The first time in my life, I couldn't, I, I figured they put holes in the paddles or something, can't even touch them. It's going ding, ding. And when he served, oh, I don't know whether any of you have ever played a really good ping-pong player. I am standing there waiting, you know, and I keep edging back, and Gasser says, play him deep, play him deep, play him deep. And I'm about 30 feet back at the table, and this guy lays one right in the strike zone, and it stops. It goes, boom, brrr. He says, love, 10. All right, hit him. So you want me to hit one? Boom, and shoot, bang, my paddle goes off. I got nothing but the handle in my hand. Well, it was like that all the way through. I scored one point. The game finally ended 21-1. These two kids grabbed the money and disappeared into the crowd. And there we stood. Gasser and I shorn. Our bones shining through. Yeah, you know, you want to say something like, well, fellas, it's the service. We're in the army, you know. And about six guys with short cigars go back to their pool game, you know. No more interest in us. Our wallets are flat. 
And the two of us go back down those stairways and out into Broadway. We're walking towards the Y. Thank God we had paid for a room at the Y, 40 cents. We're walking all the way to 23rd Street in the Y, and we're walking through Times Square. Not a word is said until we get down to about 34th Street. And Gasser says, this is sure a big town. <laughs> it sure is, Gasser. We now approach 23rd Street, and Gasser finally says it. He says, listen, if you don't say anything about it back in the company, I won't either. <laughs> I say, shake, Gasser. And we both shook hands at the corner of 7th Avenue and 23rd Street. Never to mention it in the company. And two days later, we're back in the Company K day room out at Monmouth, killing all the corporals. Bigger than we'd ever been before because we had learned humility. We had learned that there is more to it than meets the eye. And I want to say one little postscript to the scene. I was out of the Army, it was about, oh, it must have been eight or nine years later when I got a long-distance call. Now, I, I rarely get long-distance calls from California. And there's a long-distance call, and I pick it up, and the operator says, is this Mr. Shepard? And I said, yes. She says, this Corporal Shepard? Corporal Shepard? Are they calling me back or what, you know? <laughs> it's that sick feeling, you know, you get... Your gut, you know, this is a CO. What are you doing in Hammond, you know? I, I said, yes. And then I hear this voice. Hey, Shep, it's Gasser. I say, Gasser, for crying out loud, what are you doing? He says, nothing, what are you doing? I said, nothing, what are you doing? He says, nothing, what are you doing? It's two old buddies meeting, see? And then there was a brief pause in the cycle, and he says... Do you remember that ping pong game in New York? I say, yeah, Gasser. He says, you haven't said anything about it to anybody, have you? I said, no, why? He says, I'm California champ. I said, Gasser, I know where there's a guy on Broadway that can take you apart. He says, don't mention it. Well, I want to tell you, it was not more than about, oh, five years ago that I saw Gasser's picture in Sports Illustrated. And I keep remembering down there, you know, I walk around this town and I go past those buildings on Broadway where the bowling alley is still swinging. And I, I get this feeling, just, it comes, comes just occasionally. I wonder if Jaime is still up there. <laughs> Dressed in his cardigan, his chinos, you know, standing there, waiting for a GI to come in with a great backhand. And so I suppose each one of us in our lot have little buildings with plaques on them. Here I learned, keep your mouth shut. Here I learned, can you imagine your life spread out before you in all the buildings and the places where you learn real lessons? Here I learned, Never give your right name. Here I learned that there's always somebody with a better backhand than you've got. You know, I, I have a feeling that in, in life, 
There are millions of people who are not sung, who never achieve fame, who have fantastic talent above those who have. Somewhere there's a guy working in a garage that can hit a ball longer, further, and more consistently than Mickey Mantle. 